Welcome to episode number 70 of Peak Curiosity. My name is Abigail. This week, I bring you Lisa Brady, a professor of history from BSU. She wanted to talk about the demilitarized zone in North Korea and what nature has done with that land since the war, which segued into other military strategies and campaigns. And then to wrap up, we went back to North Korea and discussed the war and what has become of both North and South Korea since. Before we get into the episode, though, if you or someone you know would be a good guest for this podcast, please email me at peakcuriositypod at gmail.com. Well, why don't you uh, just start us off and tell us who you are? Okay. Uh, My name is Lisa Brady. I'm a professor at Boise State University. I'm also currently the department chair, so I'm wearing a couple of different hats right now. I um, got my doctorate at uh, the University of Kansas, where I studied environmental history with one of the founders of that field, Donald Worcester. And um, I have a master's degree in education, a master's degree in history from the University of Sydney. And I went to uh, the University of New Mexico, where I got my bachelor's degree, also in history. Um, And that's where I grew up. So I went to my hometown school. Okay, so quick review, how many degrees is that? That is four degrees. Four. Okay. And Three that... in history, one in education. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. Um, and am I allowed to ask how old you are? <laughs> sure. <laughs> yep. I just turned 50. I'll be 50. Well, I turned 50 last year. I'll be 51 in May. Oh, and here comes my cat who is 20 years old. So I'll apologize now for her um <laughs> loud meowing. She just tends to do that in the afternoon. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So how long have you been teaching? I have been teaching for about 20 years. Um, Most of those, 19 of them at Boise State. I came to Boise State as an assistant professor in the fall of 2003, and I've been here ever since. Yeah. So was it just the first place you got a job, or was there something about the school that excited you? How did you end up in Boise? Yeah, great question. It's actually a little bit of both. I wasn't done with my dissertation yet, um, so I decided I would sort of throw my hat into the ring, expecting very little interest uh, since I wasn't done. Um, I just sort of wanted practice on writing letters, uh, job application letters, things like that, and um, I got an interview, (laughs) and I was thrilled because my brother is actually a professor of biology and mammalogy up at Lewis Clark State College in Lewiston. So it was the perfect place for me uh, in terms of location. Um, I had never been to Boise before, but a friend of mine grew up here and told me that it's a wonderful city. So when I got the uh, interview, I was thrilled. And when I got the offer for the job, I was both amazed and really excited. So I just, I got really lucky. Yeah. How have you seen the school change Because the city has grown a lot. Has the school changed a lot? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it is not the same place. Um, It is so much bigger than when I got here. I think it was about uh, 13,000 students or something when I got here. And now it's, what, 23,000, 24,000, something like that. Um, The landscape has changed tremendously in terms of the buildings on campus um, so I was a faculty in residence. My husband and I lived in the residence halls for four years, uh, 
heading up a school called um, the Arts and Humanities Living Learning Community. That was from 2004 through 2008. And we were in the apartments there on a university drive that were brand new when we moved in. And we were just thinking the other day, oh my gosh, those are now 15 years old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're no longer new. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, why don't uh, you uh, tell me the story that you have prepared for me? I'm ready. Okay. Great. So my... My interests are in environmental history and military history. And so I look for places and times and events that merge those two interests together. And one of the things that I discovered in doing some research about, oh, maybe 12 or 13 years ago, is that um, military activity, ranging anywhere from, you know, sort of preparing for war to actually engaging in war, is not always as bad for the environment as we think it is. It is, by and large, a problem for nature, but there are some pretty interesting exceptions to that general rule. And one of the ones that really caught my interest was the um, unpredicted and unintended nature preserve in the Korean demilitarized zone, or the DMZ. So the Korean War, as, as you know, and as many of your listeners, I'm sure know, uh, began in June of 1950. And the fighting ranged all across the Korean Peninsula from the northern border with uh, China at the Yalu River all the way down to the very tip of the Korean Peninsula down at Pusan and the Pusan perimeter. And so most of the, the peninsula was pretty well affected by the war. Um, deforestation was a major problem. Um, erosion on the mountains and into the rivers was a problem. And so this created pretty significant environmental and therefore economic and social problems in Korea in the immediate post-war era, which began in 1953 when the war uh, and ended, the military part of it ended, um, though the war technically is, of course, still going on. There isn't a peace treaty. And so that war essentially established the border between North Korea and South Korea. And that demilitarized zone, that DMZ, has been pretty much off limits to human activity for the past 70 years. And what we have discovered, and this has really just been studied in the last 15 to 20 years, is that nature has completely reclaimed that entire zone. There are thousands of landmines still in the DMZ. It is completely bordered by very tall fences, razor wire. It's guarded by a million soldiers on um, sort of total on either side. And inside that barrier, inside that two and a half mile wide strip of land, there are endangered and rare species that exist only in the DMZ. There are um, communities of birds and plants and amphibians that exist um, there in, in really healthy communities. And so you've got this bizarre paradox of this place of war, one that still signals to the Koreans and to anyone interested in Korea as this unnatural divide between the Korean people as this amazing nature sanctuary. And so in the last about 10, 
years or so, the South Korean government and um, non-governmental organizations around the world uh, have been trying to get the DMZ preserved as a nature and peace zone. And part of that just happened two years ago. The, uh, there's a section now in the sort of east central part of the South Korean side of the DMZ that has now been designated as a United Nations man and biosphere eco peace reserve. So I just think that's amazing um, that when we sort of step back from these places of conflict, that nature, which so many of us see as sort of a, a, a peaceful thing, even though, of course, nature can be pretty brutal, <laughs> um, it's still this amazing place where nature can thrive. So that's my story. That's so interesting. Okay, I have a couple questions. So you said that yeah. there are still landmines there? Yes. But the animals, are they just not big enough to trigger them? That is the sense, yes, that most of the animals either aren't large enough or um, that they give off a chemical signature, like as the mines, um, you know, they've got um, explosive chemicals in them. Sure. And so the, the more sensitive senses of the animals, probably through their smell, they can tell where the mines are generally, and so they don't set them off. That is fascinating. Hmm. I wonder if humans lived in the wild for a minute, if we would relearn that ability or if it's just lost forever. Yeah, great question. I don't know. I wonder. So how badly was that area burned? Like, was it just like, just, just dirt was left and then it sprung up from that? Why? Yeah, that's, that's a pretty good characterization of it because in the last year and a half of the war, so from about mid-1951 um, through the armistice in July of 1953, um, the, the war was really in a stalemate position, and the North Korean and Chinese forces um, were you know, sort of arrayed against the United Nations Command and the South Korean forces pretty much where the DMZ is now. And so they were just sort of fighting back and forth over this little swath of town of territory. And it runs the whole width of the peninsula, of course. Um, So there's estuarine environments in the Western part of it. And then there are montane environments in the Eastern part of it. And that whole line, it was called the main line of resistance that MLR Um, then became the DMZ. And so, yeah, there was a lot of artillery shelling, a lot of sort of hand-to-hand combat there. Pretty much all the forests were pretty well burned and gone and shot to bits there. Um, Some of the mountains actually were even, their shapes were changed because of so much artillery shelling and aerial bombing. So, yeah, it was a very changed environment. I hope that uh, what we discover in the the DMZ is... um, that there are sort of resurgent populations of animals that have not been seen there before. Um, And it's not really a hope, it's actually happening. There have been some really fantastic studies done by the South Korean Ministry of Environment and some of the uh, university researchers there in the Republic of Korea, South Korea. And they've set up wildlife cameras in the zone 
just south of the demilitarized zone, which is called the civilian control zone. Not because civilians control it, but because civilians are controlled in that zone. <laughs> they have only <laughs> limited access um, to the civilian control zone. But anyway, so these researchers have installed uh, cameras, wildlife cameras, in some of these areas along the DMZ. And they have discovered that the Asian black bear is now living in the DMZ. And the yellow-throated martin, which is actually the um, top predator in South Korea. It's a small, it's, it's like a ferret kind of animal. Um, it, too, is... Uh, present in the DMZ. And so there are all these populations of rare and endangered animals that we now see are making the DMZ their home. Pretty amazing. That is really interesting. Do you think that uh, it had a fairly similar effect to how forest fires, as brutal as they are, can kind of reset the habitat? For sure. Absolutely. Yeah, these sort of crisis moments in uh, certain ecologies uh, such as, you know, forest fires in the United States and in Australia, for example, um, those ecosystems, many of them actually evolved to require fire in order to be healthy. And so when we started suppressing fires, um, we were really sort of altering the ecosystems in ways that those ecosystems couldn't really sustain. And that's why we now have these massive, massive burns. That's one of the reasons why we've got them. Uh, climate change is drying things out. Um, heavy burn loads, uh, or sorry, fuel loads in the forests is contributing to that. Um, but you're, you're right that there are certain ecosystems where you, you have a, a major fire or a major catastrophe, and it opens up... Um, uh, opportunities for certain species to sort of recolonize or to refresh, you could say, the ecosystems. And that tends to happen first with plants, um, uh, especially sort of ground cover. And that's certainly what happened in the DMZ. Hmm. So why are you interested in environmental history? Great question. I was just thinking that folks who were tuning into this were thinking, I thought this was a history yeah. <laughs> session. Here we are talking all about ecosystems. Um, so I got interested in environmental history um, because it matches up really well with my absolute fascination with all things historical. I love stories. I love learning about people. Um, I think the past is such a fascinating place. Um, and my love for the natural environment. I loved hiking. I loved camping. Um, I just loved being out amongst the, the birds and the um, critters of the forest. And when I learned that I could actually study both of them in the same field, it was a revelation. Hmm. Um, environmental history has only been around as a field of history since 1979. So it's one of the newer approaches to studying the past. And its primary focus is this sort of intersection between humans and the natural world. And it places nature at the center of our historical inquiry. So how is it that um, we have adapted to or changed the natural world? How has it changed or adapted to us? Um, what do we think about nature? What are our ideas? Um, how has it shaped our societies, our economies, our even our gender structures? Um, all of these things are part of environmental history. And, and so that has just been 
such a wonderful place of exploration for me. And I just, I will be forever thankful um, that I went to the University of Sydney in Australia, which is where I got my master's degree. That's where I was introduced to it. I'd never even heard of it before 1994. And I went there and took a course on Australian environmental history and it changed my life. Hmm. How do, uh, what did you, what was the word you used? Gender structures. How is that influenced by environmental history? Great question. So my very favorite um, story when I talk about this particular uh, issue is when I grew up, we always went camping for our vacations. You know, my dad was an engineer. He liked to get out in nature. He liked to sort of just get away from the city and just relax and enjoy himself. And so the three kids and my parents, we would all go out to some beautiful place in Colorado or New Mexico, which are the two states I spent most of my childhood in. And um, about 10 years or 15 years or so ago, I was talking to my mom, sort of reminiscing about camping and how much fun it was. And I miss it. And I said, do you miss it? And she said, no, I hated camping. Why? Why did you hate it? And she said, because I had to do all the cooking. I still had to do all the cleanup. I still had to take care of you kids. I still had to make sure that your, you know, your tents were clean so that we didn't have animals in them. Your dad got to take you out hiking and fishing and I had to stay back and work. And so because of the gender norms in my family and in the society at that time, it really was um, in the 1970s and early 80s, um, my mom was expected to do all of that stuff. And so she had to do all of that without the modern conveniences of her kitchen, of her dishwasher, um, of a clean you know, home to sort of relax in. And so it, our, our experiences with nature can be affected by um, our gender identities and, and uh, sort of gender expectations. Yeah, I mean, I used to feel that I've grown to really like camping now, but I remember when I was first married, we went camping and I'm like, you know how hard it is to just make coffee and at home it is so easy. Why are we here? It was cold. I slept bad. Now it takes an hour to just get the coffee ready. Yeah, it, <laughs> but I've grown to like it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you and my mom could sure have a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, you're also interested in military. Is there, maybe I should narrow this down. Is there an area of history that you don't particularly care about? Or is it really just anything? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good question. There, there are areas that I know absolutely nothing about. Well, I let me rephrase that. About ninety-nine percent of history I know nothing about. Sure. Okay, <laughs> because there's just <laughs> so much, and we are discovering new things all the time. Um, let me think. Gosh, oh, it's funny. You know, had you asked me before we hired one of our newest colleagues, um, Dr. Sean Nichols, I probably would have said, well you know, business history, economic history. I'm not so sure that's something that I could get really into, but he is so enthusiastic about it. And he's so knowledgeable about it that I find myself now thinking, oh my gosh, I want to learn more about that. Um, so no, I guess, I guess I'm just sort of a, I love all history. I'm just more drawn to perhaps moments of crisis, um, like, like war yeah. and conflict. Um, and that's not because I enjoy that. It's because it baffles me. Um, why 
why do societies get involved in that? Why can't we just get along? <laughs> that sounds so naive and simplistic, but I just, I do kind of wonder why we continue to fight wars and continue to kill each other. Yeah. You know, I, the, the situation right now between Russia and Ukraine, I, I just, I understand it from a historical perspective. I get all of that, but it, I just don't, I just don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. You have, you haven't found anything, have you? No, mm. no, I do not have the solution for world peace. Gosh, I wish I did. <laughs> Darn, yeah. Well, I just think we've ha in the 21st century, especially the 21st, I don't think you would think this so much back in like 1940, but we're so much more insulated and our lives are a lot easier. Yeah. And I think we have this really naive idea that evil is a thing that the past dealt with. Yeah. Only people were bad back then, but we're so enlightened. And look, we have like four degrees in history. We would never do something wrong, right? <laughs> I just think we're so oh. arrogant about like all the bad things that could have ever happened. They've already happened. We'll just move on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we're all progressing toward a more peaceful, unified future, right? That's, that's the goal, I suppose. And yet as a historian, you you think no nothing has changed yeah it really hasn't um yeah the people who are fighting are different the languages might be different the technologies are certainly different but the the jealousies and the greed and the hatred and the sort of the othering of of people not in my tribe um in my community in my nation that has gone on since humans evolved yeah. so and I, I don't mean to say that war is inevitable. I don't want to say that we are destined, um, we are predetermined to, to be violent because history also shows us that we can overcome those differences, that we can get beyond them and that we can solve problems in peaceful ways. Um, but I, I do think that, I, I don't know, I don't know that there will be a time without at least some level of conflict. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, it's not it's not a thing, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. That's a little demoralizing though, isn't it? <laughs> to think about us as as not being able to be better, you know? But sadly, yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid that that might be where we're headed. Yeah, I don't know. I think on one hand, what is it like in Alcoholics Anonymous? Like there's something about just accepting your state of depravity that actually can yeah. help you move on instead of just being naive to it. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. military history, are you, are you, are you again just interested in what causes the conflict? Or are you more into like the st strategy, the players of moving here and there? What is it particularly I'm most interested in the the causes and consequences of of war, but in order to understand those, especially the consequences, um, we do have to also study the strategies, the the tactics. And in fact, my book on the American Civil War, um, it's called War Upon the Land, and I looked at how ideas of nature, 19th century American ideas of nature shaped union strategy um, 
particularly the approach to war by the three Union generals who ended up winning that war, um, Grant, Sherman, and Sheridan. And my argument was that um, control over nature was a central concept in America at that time, and particularly among um, the military generals, most of whom were trained as engineers at West Point Military Academy in New York. And so the idea that you, if you could control nature, if you can control the resources, if you can completely control the territory, um, then you could, in fact, win battles and therefore the war. And that wasn't quite working for them. And so their strategy hinged on the opposite of that. If they could undermine the control of Confederate troops, but more importantly, Confederate civilians hmm. through essentially wiping out farms and um, farm implements and railroads and all the things that, that Southerners use to get their products to market or to even basically just survive, you undermine their ability to support the war. So you're taking control away from the people over nature. And I argue that's um, one of the major components that won the war. So I had to get involved in the strategies. I had to get involved at, at um, in battles at the operational level and the tactical level, um, just to, to kind of test that uh, theory about what are the reasons Grant, Sherman, and Sheridan are conducting these types of campaigns. And pretty clearly, they were talking about, we've got to get control over the means of production, um, over the landscape, over the resources, away from the civilians so that they can't get it to the troops, so that the troops can't fight us, so that we can win the war. That's really interesting. Hmm. How, how it's not a totally different goal, like, but it's just inverted a little bit to say, well, we aren't necessarily going to control it, but they won't be able to either. That's really interesting. So That's you, precisely it. <laughs> so you've written a book, which is cool. Mm -hmm. I mean, good for you. Anyone who can <laughs> finish a project that size, is, it's a big deal. Um, yeah. How long did it take you to write it? Oh, gosh. Well, that was actually based on my PhD dissertation. Okay. So um, all told, I guess... You know, I worked on it for two and a half years during my graduate studies. And um, then I sort of set it aside for a little while once I got the job, because I really needed to sort of get my bearings as a professor. Um, I, you know, I had to figure out how to teach three classes uh, in a semester and do all that while researching and doing service work and all of that. And that's that was really quite a challenge, actually. In the past, I'd only taught maybe one class in a semester as a teaching assistant. So um, anyway, that's sort of a digression there. But the book itself came out in 2012. So nine years after I finished my dissertation, but I wasn't actually working on it that whole time. I had started to do um, some of my research into the Korean demilitarized zone and into more broad um, uh, questions about military and environmental history. Um, so on and off, I would say the full, if I had to sort of condense all the work into a, a complete time span, maybe four or five years to write the book from wow. start to finish. Did it, did it do well? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I still get royalty checks for every uh, <laughs> every year. I, I I get a little bit of money um, 
based on the the percentage of books sold. So huh. yeah, How cool. I mean, I, I, I've not been made a millionaire, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I can take us out to a nice dinner once in a while. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, this is a silly question, but um, what is your favorite war? Oh, gosh. Oh, goodness. Um, well, before I started my dissertation, I would have told you it was the U.S. Civil War, but that one I can hardly think about anymore. <laughs> um, you know, I, I am absolutely fascinated by the Korean War. Um, I, am, I teach a course on it now at Boise State, and I'm teaching it right now, as a matter of fact. And I, it is just one of the most fascinating and horrific and also... Um, you know, some of the most promising moments, I think, in human history come out of it. Um, it it's, it's very similar to the U.S. Civil War, where it is really families are divided, um, and in this case, literally divided. Um, when the war ended in 1953, the um, border cut through not just villages, but individual farms. And in fact, in one instance, it cut a house into, you know, they basically just drew the line without thinking of, of who was living in that area at that time. And so, you know, it literally divided families um, who are still divided 70 years later uh, yeah. with very little opportunity to communicate with each other or to visit with each other. Um, and, you know, it, it just, so it, it gets at every level of human experience it's the politics, it's the geopolitics. You've got the Soviet Union involved, you've got the United States involved, you've got basically 20 countries who are involved in that war, even though it's called the Korean War. Um, there are historians who debate, is this an international war or a civil war? What started first, the international war or the civil war? And it depends on what questions you ask. And when you think about the experiences of the individuals, um, the heroism that uh, occurred, that that the bravery of so many, and I'm not just talking soldiers here, I'm also talking families, civilians, um, many of whom, millions of whom had to pick up and leave their, their farms and their villages and their cities um, with just what they could carry with them. Um, yeah, so, and it may just be because that's what my research focuses on right now, but the Korean War is, is just such a fascinating, um, moment i think in world history um not just in korea's history yeah i know very little about the korean war um but i will tell you the one thing i do know and then maybe you could fill me in a little bit last year okay. i read a book i cannot this whole time i was trying to think if i could remember the name and i just can't but it was written by a lady who whose grandparents were there right when the new border was set and mm -hmm. her family ended up getting separated. One of the one of her uncles, I think it would have been no, great uncles maybe at that time, decided to to not get on the truck taking people away from the border to allow room for a couple other people, and then they never saw him again. And they don't know did he end up on the north side or did he die? I mean, they just never knew. Anyway, that the girl who wrote this book ended up going to North Korea when they were still allowing people in. She had, be mm -hmm. she was in America at this point 
went there with a missionary group to teach school there. Really interesting book. If <laughs> I'll put a link wherever this podcast is when I find out what it was called. Really good. Anyway, that's all I know, basically, about the Korean War. And that... Yeah, so why don't why don't you tell me a little bit, and then I'll ask questions because I don't know enough to ask questions even. Sure. Well, what you describe that book really encapsulates the experiences of many Koreans that um, the war disrupted their families, their lives. Um, there are many people who don't know the fate of their relatives. Um, as and you're you're right that did they die? Were they um, imprisoned? Some of them were imprisoned both in North Korea and South Korea um, for their political beliefs or for their presumed political beliefs. Um, So if I give sort of the the couple minute version, um, Korea from 1910 until 1945 was a colony of the Japanese empire. And um, it had been a a, a, um, sovereign nation, a sovereign kingdom for the the Chosun dynasty um, was uh, was started in the 1300s, I think, if I'm, if I I can't remember the exact date of when the Chosun dynasty was established, but it's in the 1300s. And so for 500 years, it had been an independent kingdom um, that, yes, had a very close relationship with China, but that was independent and sovereign. Japan at that same time was sort of going through its growing period and um, evolving into a dynastic society. And by the uh, 1860s, Japan had essentially um, modernized, right? Through some force, um, but also by choice. And this is called the Meiji Restoration. Um, And so Japan adopts Western approaches to technology and economy and um, politics, and then wants an imperial uh, presence of its own, right? Like the British Empire, like um, the um, Germany and Italy and all these other European states claiming um, territories in Asia. So Japan claims Korea as a colony. That sounds like a lot of background, but it really is very important (laughs) for the war itself. Um, So during that entire period of colonization by Japan over Korea, there were people in Korea and um, Korean expatriates, those who had moved away to escape um, the the Japanese authority, uh, really activate, um, uh, what is the word, advocating for Korean independence. Some of them thought along the lines of the Soviet Union and um, communism, and they wanted to create a communist nation in Korea. And others um, were more attracted to the sort of the Western democratic tradition of Europe and the United States and Canada. And so when Korea gained its independence with the defeat of Japan um, in August 1945, both of those groups, those who were affiliated with communism and those who were affiliated with Western liberal democracy, um, they both wanted to rule over an independent United Korea. Well, as you might expect, the two factions could not come to agreements to rule together, to um, govern together. 
And so there was between 1945 and 1950 um, partisan violence, guerrilla violence, um, mainly in the South where uh, communist partisans would engage in sort of guerrilla raids or guerrilla attacks on this, the South Korean army. I sort of skipped over the part where the United States and the Soviet Union drew a line at the 38th parallel um, where the Soviets would be in charge of the territory north of that line and the United States south of that line to repatriate Jap <coughs> pardon me, Japanese uh, colonial officials and, and uh, military personnel now that the war, the World War II was over. And so um, you've got this divided nation, right, with the Soviet zone in the north and the American zone in the south. And then um, by 1949, elections were supposed to occur to determine the democratic nature or the, the sort of the future of democracy in the Korean peninsula. The north didn't accept the results in this other part of the peninsula and um, the South vowed not to accept the results in the North because both sides were saying that there would be corruption in the elections. They wouldn't be fair. Um, and to not get into too much more detail, um, that was that was sort of the pivot point for um, military uh, intervention. So by 1950, early 1950, Kim Il-sung, who was the communist leader in the North, had been garnering support from Joseph Stalin in the Soviet Union and Mao Zedong in um, China, which had only just the last year become the uh, um, People's Republic of China, a communist nation. China, that China had had its own civil war. And he finally got support from them in uh, June of 1950 to invade the South, to reunify it under Kim Il-sung's rule. Um, and then you really did it. And um, by, I think it's September, August, sorry, August of 1950, the North Korean army had all but pushed the South Korean army off the peninsula. The, the last stronghold was the Kusan perimeter in the far southeast part of the peninsula. And at that point, then the United States came into the war because Syngman Rhee, who was the leader, the political leader of, of the South, asked the United States for help. And then perhaps you know a little bit about the um, Incheon landing and Douglas MacArthur, that might seem vaguely familiar. Um, it was a brilliant military move. Um, he sent the Marines and um, the US Army up to Incheon, which is a harbor near Seoul, which is right there at the 38th parallel, and basically trapped the North Korean army um, between the Pusan perimeter in the south and the um, American forces in the north now at, at Incheon and cut off their logistics. Then MacArthur pushes north into North Korean territory and that triggers the Chinese getting involved in the war. In October of 1950, um, the Chinese People's Volunteer Army, which is millions strong, invades North Korea engages in military uh, or in um, battles with the United Nations forces, mainly U.S. forces, and that changes the course of the war, making it basically devolve into stalemate by mid-1951. More than you wanted to know, probably. <laughs> so China actually sided with America in that 
particular instance? No, no, no. no. With Korea. No, they were completely against America. In yeah, fact, they okay. saw them as imperialists and as a threat to their very sovereignty. I'm yeah. sorry if I, I that's what I that thought. Confusing. Um I was yeah. gonna say everything I thought I knew is wrong if what I no. thought Okay. <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Hmm. Well, which side's better off now, North or South Korea? Um, certainly economically and in terms of personal freedoms and um, in terms of engagement with the wider world, South Korea, hands down. Absolutely. Um, North Korea, you know, is, is isolated, and that was their own choice um, by the 1970s. Um, so interestingly enough, after the war, and so from 1953 until about 1968, 69, the North Koreans far, far outstripped the South in terms of economic development, in terms of um, freedoms, because they had in their constitution that men and women were equal, that um, people would be taken care of. They got um full health care. They got um, their their food largely from uh, the, the central government. So everyone sort of pooled their resources and then it was um, allocated out. Um, of course, since then, it's been a, a horrible mess of corruption and um, other problems, of course. Um, but for the first 15 years after the Korean War, it looked like the North was going to be the dominant Korea, the one that proved that communism could be good for its people. But beginning in the 1980s with massive, massive student and public demonstrations against the military dictatorship of Park Chung-hee and um, subsequent uh, rulers or um, presidents of South Korea, um, beginning in, in the late 1980s, you start to have true free elections in South Korea. And that also coincides then with what's been called the miracle on the Han. The Han River is the one that goes through Seoul. And um, so South Korea since then has just been an economic giant. It is a tiny, tiny country in terms of its size, in terms of its resource base, um, in terms of even its population. And yet right now it is the 11th or 12th, 10th, 11th, or 12th, depending on which list you look at, largest economy in the world. Wow. So, That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. It, it, it absolutely did an about face. It went from being one of the poorest nations in the world to one of the wealthiest nations in the world. And so South Korea is, is um, really an amazing success story, though it does come with its, its drawbacks. Um, Housing prices there are astronomical. Um, it's absolutely impossible to find, um, you know, uh, apartments if you have just completed your your college degree and you know on your salary you just you just can't afford anything in the major cities like Seoul or Daegu or Busan. Um, and there's a lot of peer pressure um, to be perfect to look a certain way. Um, Korea is one of the, the world's leaders in cosmetic surgery. So, you know, with prosperity comes some problems. Indeed, indeed. Now, um, conversely, 
North Korea currently does not look great. No. <laughs> you know, yeah, not not yeah. great. Um, I read this book. I mentioned it a few times. It's one of the most impactful books I've ever read called In Order to Live. Um, have you, are, you look like you're familiar with it. I'm familiar with it. I've, I've sort of, um, paged through it. I haven't read the whole thing. Yeah. I'll just give a very brief thing. So it's about this girl who, um, obviously grew up in North Korea and she describes a time when, you know, at one point the government was giving them food and then, at, and then they couldn't anymore. And it's like, well, you're on your own, but you're not allowed to own anything. So, or do anything. So, I mean, good luck, <laughs> which creates a mess. Anyway, she ends up escaping with her mother. Um, they have to bribe a couple of guards to get out. And that bribe involves the guards raping her mother. Anyway, they get into China they're immediately, the people who smuggled them out sold them into sex slavery in China. Yeah. And then they eventually um, get rescued from that into South Korea. Um, so then that was the first time they were ever able to experience any sort of true freedom. Yeah, anyway, just a total mess. I highly recommend it because... I, I think the first, like, the foreword um, was just, you know, all of these struggles, all of the horror I've seen, all of the, just the, the horrible things that I've had to do to survive. I don't regret mm -hmm. them, and I did them to live. And her complete um, devotion to freedom is just insane. But she even describes a couple moments where her and her mom were poor in South Korea and <laughs> having to make decisions and there they had some moments of in ways it was easy easier in North Korea because we didn't have options we just things just happened and we had to deal with it but having to have make choices and then live with them is a different kind of scary that they weren't quite prepared for Anyway. Yeah, that that sounds like any number of uh, North Korean uh, refugee stories. Um, it is one of the most restrictive societies anywhere right now. Um, it is extraordinarily poor in terms of its ability to feed its citizens. And you're absolutely right that everything is owned by the state. Everything is owned by the central government. And even during the absolute worst humanitarian crisis in the 1990s, when floods and droughts and crop failures meant that the, the North Koreans could not grow their own food, most of which went to the state anyway, um, the any food that was grown was then prioritized for military personnel Correct. and government personnel. And so the civilians were unable to feed themselves. Everything was taken. Um, in response to that, I think it was in like 1997, the uh, Kim Jong-il government said, okay, we're gonna 
open up a couple of markets um, where people can sort of barter for goods and food um, at the local level rather than everything going to the central government. And that helped quite a lot. Um, but there were still cases where people were essentially digging up tree roots and trying to boil them for nutritional soups. Um, it was horrendous. It, it, it was just one of the most devastating events in North Korean history. And the government didn't handle it well um, because the government wasn't capable of handling it, handling it well. Ideologically, the government can do no wrong because it's built on the ideology of Kim Il-sung, who is the founder of the nation. Well, and he's and, a god. He's not just a man. He's a god. Right, right. Yeah, he is the um, supreme leader forever. Um, and it, it's so it's hamstrung by its own history and its own devotion to ideology. And, um, you know, we, we think of many Americans probably think of North Koreans as dupes, um, but many of them have no other information, right? They, they have zero access to information that would tell them that the world is other than what they're told by the North Korean state media. Um, so we, I think we have to be a little bit more empathetic to the, the people of North Korea. Now, the leadership, they know the difference, um, but they, too, are sort of painted into a corner where they, they can't make other choices, right? Um, and I, I don't want to sort of exonerate them in any way. That is not my point. But I think we have to understand the historical parameters of, of maybe what they're doing. Um, you know, the nuclear issue in, in North Korea, I, I've heard lots of people say, oh, Kim Jong-un, he's just crazy. Well, no, he's acting actually quite logically. He is protecting the existence of North Korea. He sees the United States as a true and clear threat and that his nuclear arsenal is the only thing that protects him from an imminent invasion from the United States imperialists in his view. Yeah, um, I don't know if he's wrong. Yeah, you know, um, the U.S. would certainly not be sad to see North Korea go away. Yeah, you know, well, it not would go be away. A thorn in the side gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I want to tell two more quick stories from that book. One is funny, one is not. I'll start with the funny one. Uh, she describes how the schooling is all just propagandized. So math is is essentially if you if you have ten American bastards and you shoot six of them, how many do you still have to shoot? <laughs> <laughs> Which is pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're really quite ingenious in terms yeah. of propaganda, right? Yeah. I mean, they come up with some really creative ways. <laughs> to indoctrinate their people. Yeah, yeah. The second story, which is not so fun, is uh, when they were having some famines, each citizen had a requirement of poop that they had to submit to the government for, for uh, fertilization on the crops. They didn't have fertilization, and so it was, well, you have this much poop each person has to preserve each day, bring to us. So sad. Yeah. Also, I can't imagine food grown in that manner is even good for you once you do eat it, although it might be better than no food. I don't know. Yeah. You might be surprised at how many societies use what is 
more euphemistically called night soil um, for fertilizer up until the 1940s or 50s. Japan did. Interesting. South Korea did. Yeah. Um, even, you know, yeah, it, it was quite prevalent because it was, um, it, it was readily available. Um, there would be people, usually outcasts in the society, like the Bakumin in um, Japan, they would take care of, they would basically collect the uh, leavings from households um, overnight, and then they would go and process it, and then it, they would resell it for fertilizer. That's so interesting. Hmm. Maybe I need to learn yeah. more about that. Hmm. Well, when it when it decomposes, most of the icky stuff actually goes away, and what's left is nutrients. Um, but if you don't let it sort of decompose and compost long enough, then you do have real problems with um, the transmission of diseases. So I see. you're right in that regard, that it's it's not great if you use it before it's actually ready to be used. I see. Um, I'm but starting to regret... environmental historian. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Although I am starting to regret bringing up that subject. Uh, <laughs> so... Um, one quick thing about environmental history. I just learned a little bit about this. Um, in Soda Springs, Idaho, we, there's a really big Monsanto plant where they, is it um, glyphosate that is the chemical in Roundup that's needed? So yeah. they, um, they extract that out of the earth there, and then they would dump the, they called it slag in the book I read. And, uh, I mean, to their benefit, they decided to use that leftovers for something rather than just dumping it. I mean, that's not the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Are you familiar? You're nodding like you're familiar with this story. Yeah, I, I know um, sort of the, the surface amount of Monsanto's um, sort of, I know that they create Roundup. I know that glyphosate is the, the chemical in there, okay. main ingredient in there. And I know that it's really horrible for the planet. <laughs> yes, indeed. So they, um, so they, they have the leftovers after they get the glyphosate out. And so they start mixing it in with concrete and asphalt and other things like that, which, I mean, again, on the surface seems reasonable, but they started finding so much radiation in homes and in the foundations of homes. And essentially the <laughs> the findings meant Monsanto was just like I guess don't spend so much time in your basement. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And and they did kind of they they went through a lawsuit with the EPA and and um the book I read he kind of sounded like he was critical of the EPA putting Monsanto in charge of the cleanup, which mm -hmm. I'm not sure I see both sides because you want the people responsible for the mess to actually deal with the mess. But then also they have incentives to not deal with it very well. So anyway, they did technically say, well, we'll, we'll redo your foundation, but you have to pay for your housing and everything while we do it. So, wow. yeah. Anyway, that's a fun fact about environmental history here in Idaho. Yeah, I have not read that book. I will look for it now so that I can read it and yeah. learn more about it. Um, yeah, Monsanto also was the main producer of white phosphorus, which is a chemical agent used uh, 
a lot during war. It was certainly used in um, World War II and a lot in the Korean War. And essentially, anytime you expose white phosphorus to the air, it burns. So it's it's a, an incendiary. And um, yeah, that that's part of the reason why there were no forests after the Korean War in, in Korea as yeah. well, because white phosphorus was so heavily used there. Yeah. Um, so that book was called Seed Money. I'm sure if you search that, I would get you. I can't remember the author's name. Um, yeah. He also described... Fairly early on, I think it was called PC or BCBs or PCBs for short. PCBs. It's yep. really long word, like a foot long. <laughs> so, I don't know. so polybiphenyl carbonates, I think. Oh wow, nice job! And how they started finding out that it was really bad for the planet, and um, and then they were even finding it in breast milk and all sorts of other things. And they were kind of going, huh, how do we hide this? What do we do? And essentially their answer was, let's sell as much of it as we can before the government tells us we can't. That was their answer. <laughs> so. Wow. Yeah. It sounds like a depressing book. It was. I didn't actually end up finishing it because it was just so horribly dry, but um, <laughs> overall, I'm sure you being more interested in that stuff would like it quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And at least get fodder for lectures. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything that we have not covered here that you would like to cover? Oh, I don't know. I feel like I've just talked and talked and talked. You've given me such a forum. <laughs> um, I don't think so. Is there anything else you wanted to ask me? Um... I don't, well, because you were coming kind of with your thing to talk about, I didn't have much prep. So nice. I don't really have questions. Although one, I do like to ask people who like history just all the time is, what do you think is the most impactful invention ever? Oh. Oh, boy. Um... And my, my sort of initial reaction, the one that just, if it were a Rorschach test, I would say the wheel, um, because so many of other things are based on the wheel and, and the wheel makes things happen. Um, yeah, I think I'll stick with that. I think the wheel. Okay. Going with the classic. <laughs> yeah. What are some of the other answers you get? Um, well, I've heard refrigeration is a pretty big one. Oh, sure. Yeah. I argue it's the printing press. Yep. That's my yeah. go-to. Yeah, socially and, and politically and just in terms of, of literacy, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, refrigeration is, I mean, we're, we all have longer lives because of it. Yeah, it's a really big deal. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, good answers. Okay. I'll have to think about that. Maybe another one here. Um, you can sit down with any major figure in history for dinner. Let's say they can't still be alive. And who would you pick? Oh, there are so many. But um, one person that I would absolutely love to meet um, is, is actually Richard Feynman. The physicist. Okay. He was, um, yeah, he was a physicist uh, who was part of the Manhattan Project 
during World War II. He's also the one that um, identified the problem in the Challenger uh, space shuttle explosion. Um, but beyond that, he just... He's just a fascinating person who has written about not just physics, but all sorts of different things. Um, and, and there's this wonderful story that he tells of he's in his, um, his, I think it's like physics 101, introductory physics course. And um, he's in a big lecture hall and he has, I think it's like a bowling ball on a string um, attached or a wire attached to the ceiling. He, I, he must have been really a big shot at his university. I think it was either Berkeley or Stanford or, or gosh, I don't actually remember where he taught Chicago. Anyway, that doesn't matter. Um, so he would stand in one place and he would um, sort of take the bowling ball and he would, he, he would be standing right behind it and he would throw it and it would swing. Oh, and it would never hit him. And students would always be like, and so he would use these kinds of things to teach, um, you know, the, the laws of physics and how things work. And so I just I could just imagine being in one of his lectures or having a conversation with him and being able to ask him anything about how the world works. And, and the, he would just amaze me with how he would explain them, I think. Yeah. <laughs> OK, well, I think this is a pretty good place to wrap up. Um, okay. I always ask for silly questions to everyone who's on the podcast. Nice. So, uh, the first one is, do you prefer the office or parks and rec? Oh, parks and rec. Okay. Um, in Genesis chapters one through 11, we have creation through the flood and the genealogy of Noah. Is this mythology or history? That is, I would say, allegory. Okay. That works for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you think that there are aliens? I, yes. We, we can't be alone. Cool. And um, who or what inspires you to be your best? That's such a great question. That's not a little question. That's a huge question. Oh my goodness. I guess my mom. I, I guess, yeah. I just, I want her. Yeah. I want to make her proud, I guess. Yeah. She's the one who made me love history. She taught history when um, I was growing up and um, we used to have scavenger hunts and I would have to go find clues in books and figure out what the next clue meant and find the other book for it. And um, so, yeah. And she's funny and kind and big hearted. And yeah, I would say my mom. That's awesome. All right. Well, thank you for doing this. This has been really fun. You seem like the kind of person that I would just like to have dinner with. So this has been thank really you. great. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I'm deeply impressed with how much you've read. I've, I've heard of several books now that I'm going to have to go out and read myself. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I read a lot. It's probably my main hobby. So, yeah. Excellent. Anyway. All right. 
I will talk to you later, and maybe in a few months I'll call you again because this has been really good. I love that. Thanks so much, Abigail. This has been a great time. I've really enjoyed this too. Good, good. We'll talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye.